Hey, this is Coach Shea with Alpha Girl Soccer Academy, and welcome to the Alpha Girl Soccer Podcast Show, where we aim to inspire, empower, and positively impact female athletes. All right, so welcome back to the Alpha Girl Soccer Podcast. My guest today is a former Division I college soccer player, performance coach, and sports psychology expert, and the founder of White Lion Performance, Julia Iyer. Julia, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks, Coach. I'm pumped to be here. Yeah, like I am seriously so excited to have you on because you've been such a huge supporter of like what we do at Alpha Girl Soccer. And then I, I just love the content you put out on Instagram relating to sports, you know, performance and then also the mental side of things. You just always keep it real. Um, so I appreciate you coming on and I'm excited to get into today's conversation. I'm pumped as well. I think one thing that we, well, we have a lot in common, supporting young girls, but also, um, yeah, we're nothing if we're not honest and authentic. So I appreciate that about absolutely, you. Absolutely. So before we kind of get into the conversation of today, which is surrounding the mental health side of sports, um, tell us a little bit more about yourself and, and your, your backstory. Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm sure you hear it. I'm German American and I got to grow up in the two best women's soccer countries during the boom of women's soccer in the early 2000s. Uh, pretty pumped about that still. One of the biggest blessings of my life. I played soccer, was a multi-sport athlete, but soccer was just kind of the love of my life. Um, we always say that I was in college for about eight seconds and scammed my <laughs> way in there because uh, I got injured pretty quickly and uh, kind of had a career defined by stress and injuries. Um, and that led me into sports science and then away from sports science because I was bitter about not getting to play soccer anymore, not getting to live the dream. So I moved on to psychology. Um, and wound up in sports psychology, went back and studied sports science again, became a strength and conditioning coach, and now I am a sports psychology expert at the German Sport University in Cologne, Germany, which means I'm literally just waiting on my own self and my procrastination to finish my thesis before I become a psychologist. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Got to finish that dissertation. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so what, what injuries did you, did you have your injuries in college? So most of mine are from high school. I was the queen okay. of uh, patella tendonitis, which then mm. turned into some really bad patella and meniscus issues, gotcha. um, as well as um, back pain, hip pain, and ankle issues. So the typical, the typical soccer ones, but eventually it became a catastrophe. And between that and really struggling with performance anxiety, it just was time to, to uh, work on the other side Absolutely. or from the other side. Yeah. And that was kind of similar with me, like dealing with so many injuries starting from like a very young age and yeah. then all through college. Like that's why I got into what I wanted to get into in college, which is like exercise science, because I yep. spent so much of my life in like rehab. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I'm here all the time. Like I loved my physical therapist. So like, that's what sparked my interest is just my experience with like injury. Yeah. 100%. That was mine as well. Um, after six weeks. I had six weeks of physical therapy after I had knee surgery. And then they tested me on the return to play battery and said, Oh, you're not ready to return to play, but didn't offer me anything. So I couldn't play. I couldn't jump. I couldn't run any of that stuff, but they basically like, I ran out of sessions. I couldn't get any help anymore. And for years just struggled with really bad pain and couldn't play. So kind right. of got forced into retirement and was like, what do I do now? And that's how I found basically the return to play side of strength and conditioning. Um, the balance of physically and mentally helping athletes to prevent at the end of the day, but also to recover um, 
holistically. For sure. So, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So let's kind of get into, you know, you just mentioned the mental side of the, the, the recovery and everything. So obviously, you know, we're going to talk a lot about mental health today, but let's talk specifically about like the prevalence and and athletes. So I know it's not a very talked about topic, but it's something that I've had to deal with my whole life, you know, with anxiety. So I'd love to hear your take on why it's so prevalent with kids in sport now more than ever. Oh, that's a loaded question. Should I I just (laughs) start with the easy one? (laughs) Um, There's a couple directions we can go with that. I think to top it all off, mental health issues, not even just mental illness. Of course, mental illness has always been there, but mental health issues have always been there. But I think Mm -hmm. our generation, because um, in the general population, the statistics Um, point to there's a general increase in mental health issues especially anxiety and depression I think our generation because we're struggling with it more overall is now more open to talking about it but from Mm -hmm. my experience with athletes and what the research says it's always been there Um, it's just now being discussed and we're just now having sports psychologists come into it Um, and then yeah we know (laughs) it's hard to say because uh, of course in the general population, the things that point to higher rates of anxiety and depression are things like the digital age, social media, helicopter parenting, more pressure and, and less play. So um, yeah, it's kind of a, a change in the generations, but I think the primary thing is it's always been there. We're just more open to talking about it. And because life is so fast paced and you're constantly available, even as an athlete, um, it's very easy to reduce yourself to just being available all the time and your performance statistics. So that's what I see for the most part. Yeah. And I, I agree with you that I, it's not like it's just showing up. It's been there, but just with a lot of things, you know, as time goes on, we're just more willing to talk about it. And I still think we have a far way to go with, with talking about mental health and especially, you know, in the U S with, with, you know, getting help with that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But I you know at least it's a start that we're starting to talk about it more And so like with me, I struggled with anxiety ever since I was a kid. Like I still struggle with it. But for me, like sport was almost my escape. Like it was my way where I could, like the one place I could go where I wasn't worried about being anxious, you know, like if I would go to school, I'd be anxious. But as soon as I stepped on the field for practice or games, like I, I was fine. Like it was, like I just said, my escape. So what is your experience with working with athletes that, have that same, you know, use it as escape or do you work with a lot of athletes where maybe the sports is the cause of, you know, anxiety or any other, you know, mental health issues? That's so interesting. I see a lot of the double header where a lot of people define themselves by the sport and athletes say, I love this so much, but it's causing me pain. That's mm-hmm. a lot of what I, um, I work with. But of course, like you said, there's definitely the other there's two sides of that coin as well. Some people say, I love it and it's causing me pain. Some people love it and can turn their brains off. And some people are just absolutely crippled by it. Um, those people tend to leave sport fairly early um, and don't tend to be the college athletes uh, or beyond that I work with. But as far as in your case, so how long did you play up to what um, you played in college as well? Did yeah, you I played all four years? Yeah, I played all four years. And did you play after that as well? No, I didn't. And you didn't, never had any issues during games with, with stress? Um, I would say more so my, my youth was a little bit more stressful than, than college. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was actually playing, no, I, that was the, the place I could go where I didn't feel like a ton of, you know, stress and that kind of thing. 
did you feel like you just mentally shut off when you when you played yeah because when I was on the field I wasn't worried about the future I was only focused on the moment you know what I mean yeah so what we see on that side of the coin is basically sport as a coping style almost because it becomes that escape you basically learned how to and this is what we try and teach athletes who have really really high performance stress um, or competitive stress um you guys have probably heard the, the term choking under pressure athletes who tend to perform really well in training but then get into competition and just all of a sudden their performance drops off um, and what we try and do is bring them back to the moment into the present second um, and ask like what's the worst that can happen and it seems like as far as what the research tells us and from my own experience as a psychologist the athletes who use sport as an escape naturally learn to do that from a young age Mm-hmm. whether they ever had anxiety around sport or not they learned how to basically shut their brain off and stay where they are in the moment instead of thinking about what's past and what's coming so that's unique nice yeah and that's a huge thing that i see with a lot of the girls i train is like they'll be awesome during practice and during training but as soon as they step on the field they kind of freeze up and and they don't play well and i was always taught like oh you're you a lot of kids are either practice players or they're game players but i feel like it goes deeper than that and and it's more of like the the fear and maybe the stress of games and the fear of failure and um just the the need to like please everybody yeah absolutely so my my bachelor research um area of expertise was in basically the personality profile of people who suffer from performance stress. We found people who have high levels of perfectionism, high amounts of fear of failure, and very low self-efficacy, which basically means Mm -hmm. people who struggled in knowing, people who weren't confident in their ability to complete the task, essentially those people um, tended to have more performance stress, but it's not exclusive to that. The statistics were significant, but they weren't so significant where we can say these personality types, these highly perfectionistic people, these high fear of failure people um, are always going to choke or have performance stress. Nothing definitive yet. So with like you said, perfectionism, I know that's a thing. And I I did a workshop uh, recently where we talked about, you know, avoiding perfectionism, but how like it's easier said than done. So what strategies do you have or have you learned with working with athletes that can help athletes to like avoid that sense of having to be perfect all the time? So perfectionism is a tough one um, because people have usually gone their whole lives being perfectionistic or not. And that tends to show up in more ways than just sport. School, for example, family, for example, relationships, for example, Um, And so it's practiced and reinforced through daily life. So it can be hard to break. So first of all, we want to bring awareness to the fact that, hey, there is no such thing as a standard of perfection. And then also to acknowledge that it's nice to try to be perfect, but if you're trying to be perfect and it essentially doesn't get done or doesn't get done well, then what was the point in trying to wait for it to be perfect? Mm -hmm. Those are the awareness pieces up front. And then to always ask, and we always try to bring into discussion what is the worst that can happen and what's the best that can happen. I know I already said that, but still really important to, to ask. And then at the end of the day to ask, who are you taking feedback from? Like who, Hmm. and this is whether it's perfectionism or fear of failure, they usually walk hand in hand. 
who are you gaining your confidence from? Like whose feedback? Is it your friends, your coach, your family? And then to identify three to five people whose feedback actually really matters to that athlete and then only allow them to listen to those people's feedback. Um, because right. a lot of times perfectionistic athletes will be critical of themselves and it's not, and that's bad enough as it is to deal with. But then when you have other critics, other people talking trash, um, reinforcing the things you believe about yourself, um, that tends to just reinforce the negative behaviors and negative thought patterns. For sure. And also I've like just observing perfectionists and kids that feel like they have to be perfect all the time. I've noticed a lot that the kids that are perfectionists when they do fail or when they think they fail, they, they don't really know how to take that failure and learn from it. It's like, Oh, I failed. And then it's like over like their, their mindset is so closed as to what they can accomplish because they are so perfect. And if it's not up to their standards of being perfect, it's like game over for them. Like your career is over. You got to retire now because you just like long balled that shot. (laughs) Right. And it's even true for like the little things, like we'll do a drill. And if they, if they can't do it right, like if it's not perfect, then they just shut down and it's like, no, I, I can't do it. Like they don't want to try to do it. They won't do it unless they know they can do it perfectly. So they avoid those challenges. Yeah. Again, what's the very worst that can happen? Are you going to die? Are you going to get seriously injured? Most likely not. Um, Are you going to feel embarrassed? Maybe. Is it actually embarrassing? No. How many people do you think will actually notice? Very few. Mm -hmm. Um, In most scenarios, obviously, if we're talking about penalty kicks in like a World Cup final and you just send it to Saturn, then maybe that's a little bit more embarrassing. But that's most often not the situation that we're working with. It's the small things that really build up. And do you think perfectionists, like, do you think they're more worried about what people think of them? Do you think that's why they're perfectionists? Or do you think it's more internal? Or I guess it just kind of depends on the person. It does depend on the person, but to be quite honest, in my experience with working with athletes and my experience as an athlete just talking to each other, about 90 98% of it is um, basically having somebody rate you from outside mm-hmm. and allowing, again, value to be held up by statistics and not by the things that actually matter in life, just, just numbers and performance. And that's not actually what we evaluate people on. So that's not actually what we should be worried about. Right. So let's get into competitive anxiety a little bit because like for me, like I said, sport was a place for me to go to to combat my anxiety, but I still got super nervous. I don't know if you'd call it competitive anxiety, but I still got extremely nervous before games. I know Mm -hmm. there's so many players that get really nervous before games, whether you just want to call it nerves, butterflies, anxiety, whatever it is. So give us some like concrete strategies that our listeners can use to like just kind of focus in on the game and kind of combat those nerves before like big games. Yeah, definitely. So there's a difference between stress and anxiety, right? So what we're talking about in that situation is the feelings of anxiety. Even if you're not having a nervous breakdown, even if you're not panicking, those feelings are what we call anxiety um, or high physiological arousal. If you're a sports science nerd, like Shay and I are, Um, and those things tend to start that reaction in your body, which is a completely normal reaction, tends to start before you even realize it. So it's important to not just start working on it 10 minutes before the game when you start to feel really nervous, but to work on it like the day before, or even to implement things in training. And what we do is, um, pre-performance routines. Did you have a pre-performance routine, Shay, that you used? 
in college I did, but not until college. Um, what I did is I like to visualize a lot. What was it? I like to visualize um, before games, but like I said, I didn't pick that up until college, but it definitely helped me a ton. Yeah, so that's a go-to one um, that we use a lot and is very, very, very helpful. So a pre-performance routine is basically something that you do in the same order every single time before a game, including like the day before, the morning of um, match day, and then directly before the match that you always do. So it basically gets your brain and body to say, hey, Mm -hmm. it's time to perform let's calm down and then let's hype us ourselves up to mm-hmm. a point that's appropriate for us. Not what the rest of the team is doing, not getting totally psyched out beyond control, just <laughs> to where you can handle it. Cause everybody's got a different place to perform. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Were you somebody who like performs at a very high state of psyched out or no? Uh, that's why I laughed. Cause it's so funny. Cause I remember just in the locker room, like, like half the team would be crazy dancing around and some of the team would just be like in there like Zen Um, But I was somewhere in between, like, I like to stay calm up until a little bit. And then as we got closer, then I was the one like dancing in the locker room and just getting like hyped up, listening to music that hyped me up. So I was somewhere in the middle, um, but I needed to stay calm until like, I don't know, for like an hour before the game, you know, 45 minutes, 30 minutes before warm up, and then I could get hyped up. So we're like the same person. That's nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was the same. I was the loser who like had my sound, uh, like sound blocking headphones on listening to classical music. Like I'm in there with like Bach on the train, on the bus, on the way in. And then even up to warm ups and then warm ups, I would start basically waking up and getting the zone. And then I was out there dancing okay. with everybody else. Okay. Um, but it's really important. Some people really need to be overly hyped up uh, in order to perform. And it's important that every athlete knows where they are and builds a pre-performance routine that will help them, will facilitate them getting to that spot. What are some like, well, let's, I just want to ask you though, what are some common like pre-performance routines you see with athletes? So music is a big one, right? So any specific genre of music, uh, any specific song, some people have very specific songs or artists that they listen to. Some people find it helpful to talk to a teammate or to a coach. Mm-hmm. Some people um, want to write beforehand or visualize. You mentioned visualization. That's probably one of the best ones because especially if you do it the night before or the morning of, For sure. seeing, your, seeing yourself in uniform, in your kit with your teammates mm-hmm. on the pitch, you in stressful situations, completing things well and basically solving problems in your own head, convincing basically using your imagination to convince your body that you've already been there before. Mm -hmm. That's one of the most powerful tools we have. So, and that one's pretty easy to implement. Right. For sure. Yeah. So other ones would be breathing exercises as well, which you can work into visualization quite well. Did you do breathing exercises as well? I did not. I do now, but I didn't when I played. No. (laughs) Okay. So what's, what's give us like, what is a breathing exercise? Like, what does it include? So for Oh man, there's so many. But for athletes who tend to get really, really psyched out, we do something called slow paced breathing, which physiologically it brings that very high level of arousal down so that it's manageable and it literally calms your body, Mm -hmm. brain and body, of course. So that would be like, you can sit, you can lay on your back, get in whatever position is comfortable, but try and get as calm as possible. And then four seconds, inhale two second hold and then as slowly as possible up to six seconds exhale mm-hmm. hold and then repeat and do that for about two minutes and it basically forces your body to come down from that physiological high 
And that's something that if nothing else works, if this athlete is just basically suffocating, Mm -hmm. um, we can always use slow paced breathing and that will always recenter the body or something as simple as take 10 deep breaths um, and center yourself, consider where you are, basically bring yourself back to the present. Um, Meditation is always a good, or meditation in in, um, cahoots with breathing techniques is always a good go-to. There's so many and there's so much on YouTube, but slow paced breathing is, is the emergency button. So is there like a, a right way and a wrong way to breathe? For example, breathing through your chest, breathing through your belly, like what do you suggest as far as like, how should we breathe to really get the best effects from that? Yeah. So breathing through your chest is shallow breathing. So mm-hmm. that won't calm down your nervous system to get super duper technical. Um, there's something called the vagus nerve and when you breathe really deeply into you fill up the entirety of your lungs Mm -hmm. um, and expand use basically the entirety of your diaphragm it activates that vagus nerve which again to be to stay technical activates your parasympathetic nervous system which forces your body to calm down so when you breathe through your chest you don't get that effect that's just shallow breathing and unfortunately that can also psych you out more because it gives you the illusion that you can't breathe deeply Mm -hmm. which then activates the other nervous system the one that psychs you out more yeah. So with that, like, cause I, I just recently, like within the last six months, like I've really been focusing on, you know, a, a deep breath, not with my chest, but like with my, you know, having my rib cage expand. So what I'll do yeah. and I help is like, I literally will like put my hands around like my, my torso rib cage area. And I'll just try to fill up that space so that I'm focusing on filling that up and not my chest up. Yes, absolutely. Breathing through the ribs is really important, forcing the rib cage to expand, um, but also not just breathing directly into your belly. Um, that's not mm-hmm. the way to go, but you, right. you can test yourself by yeah, putting your hands around your ribs or on your stomach and seeing if, you, um, if your body expands and learning how to expand your body and learning how to breathe differently. Unfortunately, we don't know how to breathe. Um, <laughs> it's just not something that anybody ever taught us and we don't naturally learn how to do it even though we have to do it more than anything else. So, right. Yeah. It sounds comical, but it's important. I know it's crazy that we have to like learn how to do something like, so like, I don't know what the word is. Like so simple. Like, that's so, so primitive. Exactly. It's like you absolutely need this to survive and we don't know how to like do it correctly. Like I'm 28 years old and I am just learning like how to breathe correctly, like to like calm myself down, you know, it's just crazy. Yeah, I wish that was something that we all learned in kindergarten, but unfortunately, uh, that's not the school I went to. So. I'm sure there are some schools out there now that, that do that kind of stuff. I wouldn't be. Um, it would be awesome if there was, but that's kind of the same thing as that's basically just the psychophysiological side of when you go to college, they're probably going to reteach you how to run and work on your running technique, which is something you've been doing forever. And you're like, this is stupid coach. Like I know how to run. And it's like, well, not efficiently mm-hmm. and not to the best. And I want to keep you from getting injured. Um, so we're going to go back to the very basics. Sometimes you got to do that with your breathing as well. We do it on everything else. So the mental side is still important to break down the basics. For sure. So we got our pre-performance routine. Um, you know, along with that, you talked about a little bit about visualization, uh, slow paced breathing. What else can we do? Say maybe let's say that they're, they're already warming up or they're about to warm up. So they can't necessarily like do that kind of thing. What, what else can they do um, as they're getting more revved up if they still have those nerves? So something that takes practice, but I highly recommend to any athlete, whether or not you have 
uh, any issues with fear of failure or, or competitive anxiety is have three words about yourself that you can repeat over and over again. Um, so usually three things that are great, three very positive things about yourself, just one word, I don't know, honest, authentic. Um, in German, we always say Hammer, which means like excellent or hardcore or something like that. Just three things that are overwhelmingly positive about yourself. Most of my athletes that have competitive anxiety will sit there and be like, I don't know, I guess I'm funny. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's a good one, but I don't know if it's right. going to help you. So go ask your friends, like ask your friends right. and family how they describe you. Um, and then you just repeat those words over and over again and try and bring your mind back to, hey, regardless of how this goes, I'm still these three great positive things mm-hmm. and take your mind off of the stress. We're essentially at that point trying to use distraction instead of prevention. So. Right. And let's, I want to get into like visualization because we, we scratched the surface of it, but it's just something, the surface. <laughs> yeah, the very surface. And it's something that I think helps me so much. Like I use it for pretty much everything I do, whether it's I'm about to do a workshop or I'm about to have a phone call that I'm nervous about anything I do now, obviously I'm not playing competitively. Um, but let's get into a little bit more about like, how can someone visualize, like, let's break it down in the most simplest terms so that if players are listening to this, they can go in and do it in their games, you know, this weekend. So let's like, let's pick a scenario. What's, what's going on in the States this weekend? It's preseason, right? Yeah. So, well, high school is just starting up for a lot of us here in California, um, with not high school season, but just high school in general. And then I know there are a bunch of, of um, tournaments coming up for youth and then yes, for college preseason. So we can use any of those. Okay. So let's say it's the first test game of the preseason. Does that make sense? Um, or is that, or is that like an ex- exhibition game is what you would call it? I don't know. Or like the first preseason game, I guess. <laughs> are you talking like college? Yeah. Okay, that I'm pretty sure we call it like exhibition game, but yeah. Okay, great. I'm just <laughs> literally translating things from German. So, <laughs> um, all right. So we're playing an exhibition game um, this weekend. It's your first time. Um, let's say you're a senior and you're going to be starting. It's your first time actually starting out the season as a starter. So what we're going to do is get you into a super relaxed position. Um, and we're going to run through this scenario as realistically as possible in your head. So we got to start talking about the senses. So Shay, you're a senior. You're going to start as a starter this year. Um, it's going to be your first game. You're standing on the line. What position did you play? Uh, center mid. Okay. So right before the whistle, um, what, are, what do you see on the pitch? I see the other team lined up across from me, and I see all the fans uh, surrounding the field. Okay, and what do you hear? I hear our, uh, our little pump-up music that, that um, starts before every game. Okay, and what do you feel? I feel butterflies, but I feel super excited and pumped. And what do you feel around you, like in your environment? Energy. Okay. Do you smell anything? Fresh cut grass. The oh, best yeah. smell in the world. <laughs> the best part of preseason, baby. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, and you probably don't taste anything yet unless you've been drinking Gatorade right beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, we want to activate all of those senses and give you the most realistic picture 
sure that we can come up with that mm-hmm. all, all of those things everybody who has ever played can probably they can probably see exactly what you're talking about when we say all those things mm-hmm. see lined up across from me i see the sun it's hot the fans the pump up music etc so you want it to be as realistic as possible and then you're going to run through scenarios with that realistic picture in your head mm-hmm. so whether it's okay so that's kickoff but what about now a penalty kick situation mm-hmm. or um a free kick situation or a one-on-one with the most badass striker in <laughs> uh in the conference mm-hmm. or um the first time the ball is at my feet and it's a really important game deciding situation um yeah you can basically take that picture in your head and the feeling in your body as well as everything in your surrounding and apply it to any situation to run through it in your head mm-hmm. yeah like i like to, to convince your again convince yourself that you've been there before yeah, yeah. I like to uh, like tell my players, it's like you're almost like watching a movie of yourself, like playing the game, you know, because exactly. then it's it just like, just like we went through, like you asked me what I felt like, I feel like being super specific, the more specific you can get, the better, you know, you're going to feel, the more confident you're going to feel when you actually step out there and do it. Exactly. Um, don't freak out if you get really distracted at first. Everybody gets really distracted at first. Um, also... Yeah, don't freak out if you see yourself from third person as opposed to being in that situation at first. That's also okay. At the end of the day, it it will still work if you can see yourself in the third person, like kind of fly on the wall situation. That's you'll still get a, on myself. Yeah, you'll still get a great benefit from it. But mm-hmm. the more you do it, the more you practice. Mm-hmm. Most people can eventually get to the I'm in my own shoes on the pitch to some extent, even if it's in small blips. But don't get frustrated if you can't see that right away. Okay. Yeah. That's it really- takes a lot of practice. Uh, yeah. That's the thing too, is like, I feel like a lot of, a lot of kids, um, like when they try this sort of thing, like their mind wanders and then they, they just kind of give up because they weren't able to like fully get in the moment. But it's like, just like practicing a new skill. This mm-hmm. is a new skill that I, you have to like continue to practice in order for it to really take effect. Yeah, 100%. So this is definitely not something that you wake up on match day and say, I'm going to start doing visualization and expect it to bail you out. Uh, You're never going to go into a penalty kick situation knowing that you can't take penalty kicks and hoping that you figure it out when you're there. It's just like very negligent. So you shouldn't do that also with visualization, hoping it'll bail you out at the last second, Mm -hmm. hoping that you'll let it along the way. It takes a lot of practice. Yeah. Um, And essentially, the way that we look at it as psychologists is even if you get distracted, even if it doesn't you know, pop off the way that you wanted or expected it to be, it's still great because it's skill learning and practice and you still took yourself out of your stress for the moment and put yourself into the shoes of I've been here before. Absolutely. So any little bit of it helps. Yeah, that's what I would say is like, if you've already been through it in your mind, like you'll feel so much better when you're actually doing it in person because um, you've just watched it in your mind, you did amazing, you felt amazing. So when you're actually doing it, it's like, all right, I've already done this, I can do it. Like it just builds a sense of like confidence and calmness. Absolutely, 100%. And it'll bring you into, again, once you get onto the pitch, it'll help it. It'll be so much easier to say, hey, I've been here before and I can stay in this moment instead of distracting yourself or dissociating once you're out there as well because you've recognized it and you'll recognize it as soon as you recognize it. Oh, hey, I, I've been here. So we're good. All right. And, and a lot of the, the girls that listen to this podcast are 
you know, either in, in middle school or in high school. Um, and I just want to like stress like that this doesn't need to be like something where you're laying down, you have candles on, like it can literally be <laughs> put your headphones on while you're in the car headed to your game. Obviously, if you're not driving, right, if your parents are taking you, like it's something you can do on the way on the way to the game or even, you know, the night before as you're falling asleep. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like a, a Buddhist yoga ritual or <laughs> something like that. It's just, it's literally, I mean, of course, I work with professional athletes for the most part and collegiate athletes, and you know they're nasty. So, like, a lot of <laughs> the examples that we'll use is, like, what other stuff are you thinking about during the day that's very vivid? Like, you, we know you have the imagination to be able to right. do this without sitting down and meditating about it. So mm-hmm. just use the time that you'd be doing that otherwise um, and spend your time thinking about the game because, I mean, soccer is your biggest priority. So right. just direct, redirect that imagination again, with practice, um, to the pitch, it helps immensely. So, yeah. And I mean, you can literally use it for anything in your life too. Like I said, I use it, you know, for a ton of things, you can use it before a test. If you get nervous before a test or, you know, anything, anything like that, it's not just useful for sports. Yeah, absolutely. And one great thing that you can do with visualization is instead of just seeing yourself performing optimally, you can also go back and correct errors. So if you made a big boo-boo on the pitch, I don't know, corner kick, and you kicked it, you shot it right back out of bounds, and that was the last 10 seconds of the game. I don't know. <laughs> Literally right. translating things. Um, I hope it makes sense. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. That was, um, it made sense. <laughs> and, yeah, you made a really big mistake. So now, instead of being upset about it, give yourself some feedback. What could I do better? Now we're going to go home. We're going to visualize before the next game you're in that situation again, how can you correct it? And how can you see yourself correcting in your mind and reconvince yourself and do that? A lot of things that we see is almost a form of um, agoraphobia when it comes to competitive stress. Oh, one time I took a penalty kick and I just, so stress in a specific situation or place. Okay. So if you take a penalty kick and you skyrocketed it, now you're going to be almost traumatized by doing that ever again and scared that you'll repeat that. Mm -hmm. So by basically going back to it right away and, and recreating that scenario in your mind and seeing yourself executing it properly instead of making that mistake, we can try and correct that, um, that mental block as quickly yes. as possible. I love that because I feel like that's probably so true for so many girls, whether it's, like you said, a penalty kick or a corner kick or literally anything. Um, and I actually have never really done that before. Um, so I think that's a great, a great uh, technique is going back and correcting that that thing that you kind of messed up on or you made a mistake on and correcting in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for the perfectionists who will get stuck on that forever. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't have to live with, (laughs) I'll always be terrible at corner kicks. Um, No, we can correct that. Right. Absolutely. And you can even get down to the nitty gritty of, Hey, my foot struck it this way. I knew it was wrong as soon as I struck the ball. Now let's get the feeling through visualization and through that little breathing meditation of, hey, my foot's striking the ball exactly the right way, and then I see it going exactly where I want it to go. And I see the play being executed. I see the goal at the end, et cetera, et cetera. For sure. Um, yep. Cool. So let's get into a little bit. Um, I know we weren't, this really wasn't in the plan, but I kind of want to talk a little bit about like how players, specifically like youth players, can deal with like the outside pressures, maybe the stress that's put on them from from their parents or their coaches, whether it be in games 
or whether it just, you know, be in practices, but how can they kind of combat those, those external forces of stress and to like, um, you know, be calm and, and play their game and kind of tune those out if they're negative. Yeah, that's really hard, especially if they're in those, those three to five people, if they're getting that feedback from those three to five people where the feedback really matters, Mm -hmm. especially if it's overwhelmingly negative feedback. Um, The thing that I usually start with in these cases is to say, hey, let's first recognize that communication is a two-way street. So they're going to send the communication, right? They're going to say something, but then you also have to receive it in order to complete that stream of communication. If they're saying something inherently negative, it's not helpful, it's threatening to you, it's painful to you, it's embarrassing to you in some way, don't receive it. Literally, it's, it sounds it's so oversimplified. But essentially, if you see yourself in a bubble and the other person in a bubble, don't reach outside your bubble to pull in negative feedback and let it affect you and change the inside of your bubble. Somebody just threw that at you from their bubble. That's their perception of things. Mm-hmm. That's their attitude in that moment. And again, it sounds so oversimplified, but just don't accept and don't receive the unhelpful, negative, painful criticism from other people if it doesn't matter to you. Yeah, because I actually had a player, um, I actually think it was yesterday, sometime this week, and they were talking about how their their coach was like, you know, kind of, you know, the stuff they're saying was, was hurting them and making them feel not confident. And it's hard because I'm like, I don't want to say like, don't listen to your coach because obviously you have to listen to your coach, but it's almost like you just said, it's like you have to take in the useful stuff and try to like block out that stuff. But I know that's way easier said than done. Absolutely. It takes also a ton of practice, just like anything else when it comes to skill learning, but I promise it'll change your life when you can basically take back the power and the communication structure with your coach or teammates or parents or your federation or whatever it may be and say, Hey, I'm filtering you. This is the stuff that's helpful to me. This is what benefits the team, the performance. And I'm not saying be disrespectful. Obviously you can do that completely silently and they'll never realize that you just totally disregarded how many times they cussed you out. Right. Mm -hmm. But take back the power instead of giving it to them and letting them force you to receive um, those negative words or whatever it may be take back the power and say, Hey, I'll, I'll take what is good. What's positive, what's helpful to my performance. And I'll leave the rest because that's your problem. That's you talking out of your blinders and not out of my bubble. So if, if say there's a, a 13 year old girl that, that has that problem and their coaches, you know, kind of being a jerk to them, you know, making them not feel confident. Um, Cause sometimes I'll say, well, have you talked to your coach about it? Like, go tell your coach, go have a conversation with your coach and let them know that what they're saying is hurting you, not helping you. Is that something you would suggest players doing if they feel comfortable enough to do that? Absolutely. If you feel like your coach isn't just going to cuss you out right, right in front of your face and look at you sideways, then absolutely go talk to your coach because sometimes that's all the coaches used to. Like that's how they were coached. That's how they've coached um, all their other athletes and they've never gotten feedback. So we should always be helping each other to get better. And that includes you holding your coach accountable because they're supposed to be serving you at the end of the day um, and helping you get better. So definitely if you feel comfortable with it, go talk to your coach. Um, If you've got other teammates who are also struggling with this um, and can come to your coach neutrally with multiple teammates and say, Hey, you know, frame it non-aggressively. Hey, this is what we've observed. This is what we've been getting. This hurts us in this, this, this way. Um, 
that can often be helpful. I th think the problem there is, I don't know if you, what you've seen and heard, um, but I do a lot of mediation as a sports psychologist. And a lot of the things I see are both sides getting really defensive. Yeah. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. And, and that doesn't ever help the situation. Nope. And then the coach is trying to say, oh, well, you just need to perform better and you just need to suck it up and blah, blah, blah. And then the athlete says, no, you came at me sideways. Like you're mm -hmm. talking out the side of your mouth and I don't know who you think you are, blah, blah, blah. And mm -hmm. that achieves nothing. Um, but usually if you can present things in a respectful and honest way and still get the point across, you know, don't let them talk you down from, hey, this hurt me um, and minimize the situation. But if you feel comfortable talking to your coach, that's a great way to start. Yeah. And I feel like there's uh, so many issues where girls will, will ask me questions. And, I, and a lot of the times my answer is go talk to your coach because that could really solve a lot of the problems. Like I'm not your coach. I can't really the only thing I can tell you is if you feel comfortable enough, go talk to your coach. Cause I think that can solve a lot of issues. Um, but it's just about like being comfortable enough to do that. And a lot of girls don't like that, like kind of confrontation. I don't either. Um, but I think that, that they need to start being more comfortable with talking to their coach or talking to their teammates about it. And then, like you said, maybe forming a small group, they can go and talk to the coach collectively. Absolutely. I think, something I always try to tell any athlete that I work with is I know that sport, uh, and I don't know what your experience was in college, but in sport in general, my experience as a, a staff member and as a player, we are, the players are often seen as commodities or products instead of mm -hmm. um, human beings. And we're not. So you have to bring that to people's attention sometimes because coaches are also in danger of losing their job a lot of times. Um, or they also have pressures and they also have lives. So sometimes bringing back the awareness of, hey, dude, I too am a human being and this is what I need from you in order to have a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. um, that's important. And right. it's a relationship that still needs, uh, yeah, there's a power structure, but mm -hmm. it's still a relationship that still deserves respect and feedback, mm -hmm. even yeah. though confrontation is never easy. Absolutely. Um, all right. So I got one last big question. Um, yes. And this can be related to sports. It doesn't have to be, but but I want to help the kids out there that are struggling, you know, with anxiety or depression or performance anxiety. Like what strategies do you have? Like, as far as what can they do to, you know, get support from people? Like how can they, if they're nervous to talk about it? Cause I know I was nervous to talk about it for a while, but what can, what can players do kids do that are struggling with that kind of thing? How can they kind of, you know, overcome those, those senses of anxiety and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's, that's difficult. And if that's something that you guys are dealing with, any of your athletes are dealing with, I'm so sorry, that's not an easy place to be. The first thing I want to say is you're not by yourself, because the statistics and the research tells us that the sport population um, has exactly the same statistics as the general population, which means about anywhere from 32 to 37% of athletes struggle with moderate to severe depression and anxiety at any point. Um, or at any one time. And that's just like normal people. So cool. Athletes aren't superhuman. We knew that already. <laughs> um, that also means that we shouldn't have to act like it. However, the last um, round of research that we had on women's soccer was that 40% of athletes um, in total of the total population of soccer players wanted psychological support wow. and only 10% of them ever accessed it. Okay. 
So that means players are looking for support and need help. And there's some threshold or some barrier to be crossed of, hey, I don't want to get this. Maybe it's stigmatized. Maybe it's not accessible, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Mm -hmm. So the first thing is to ask, what's the barrier? Can you tell somebody about it? Can you get help? Is there a sports psychologist? Because sports psychologists, we don't deal with mental illness unless we're in research. Um, You know, like we're not therapists. We can't give medication. We can't diagnose. Um, we just give you skills and strategies. We build your toolbox. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking to a psychotherapist or um, a psychologist or a psychiatrist or your doctor, if that's something that you're really concerned about, that's also always an option just for ideas. If you really feel like it, you need some more help with it. But otherwise, the same skills and strategies that we talked about with competitive stress, using those in everyday right. life, mm-hmm. wake up, visualize your day, have a routine to start your day and to end your day. Um, and then getting really, really good at filtering out other people's feedback and other people's stress. Um, those are all things that can help. Absolutely. Again, it's a skills game. Sometimes you need a little bit more help than that if it's less of an issue and more of an illness or a concern. Um, mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to talk about it, first of all, because again, everybody's dealing with it at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and ask for help if you need it. But otherwise, treat it, treat every day like a competition or a game day and wake up and have your routine and do your thing and, and stick to it. Awesome. Yeah. I love that. And that's huge is just simply talking about it. I feel like the more you hold it in, the the worse it is. So I think that's the first thing, like you just said, is just tell somebody about it, whether it's a friend, a parent, a teammate, teacher, whatever it is, just talk about it, you know, see if you can get help that way. Cause support means a lot. Absolutely. And it's really important to, especially as athletes, to have support systems in and outside sport. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, the people outside sport might not understand your life in sport, but the people in sport will understand. And even if those people might judge you because of, they might not understand the stress in your family and how that relates to sport, but the people outside will understand family stress or exam stress, things of that nature. Absolutely. So, so keep it exciting. Don't just limit yourself to sport. Um, expand mm-hmm. that social network as much as you can. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Okay. So as we bring this podcast to a close, um, tell us where people can connect with you, can learn more about you, can reach out to you, all that good stuff. So you can find this very loud German at (laughs) whitelionperformance.com or at whitelionperformance on Instagram. Um, And the thing that I try and do is make mental health, sports psychology, and training resources as accessible as possible. So if you're somebody who deals with anxiety or stress or depression or uh, communication, et cetera, you might find something helpful on the internet from me um, because I'm of the belief that you shouldn't have to pay a million dollars for a sports psychologist or a, a therapist if you can just find some strategies to hold you over in the meantime. Absolutely. A lot of times it's small stuff that works. So. Yes. And I'll post all your stuff um, below. But just like she said, guys, she seriously posts the most useful stuff that uh, pretty much anyone on Instagram. So if you're in related to everything, so mental health and this, the physical side of performance. So seriously, go follow her on Instagram. You have Twitter too. Yeah. I do. I'm at the Julia Lion and I'm especially loud on Twitter. So. Okay. So if you want the loud version. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But most likely your people have seen my stuff because you are one of my biggest supporters. I so appreciate um, how much you care for athletes holistically and there's not that many people doing it. So I really appreciate how you have been trailblazing and investing in these kids' lives, um, thank you. Well, these athletes' lives. So thank, thank you, you so much. 
Thank you for all you do. Um, so everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope that you will take what Julia talked about and use it in your daily life. Make sure you follow her on Instagram, Twitter, uh, go check out our website. I promise you will not regret it. And please subscribe to the show if you haven't subscribed already and we'll catch you on next week's episode. Thanks for listening.